It's Tuesday, April 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Terror plot thwarted. The FBI and local law enforcement in Los Angeles have arrested a 26-year-old man who was obsessed with getting his hands on an IED so he could cause mass casualties in retaliation for the shootings in New Zealand. The would-be terrorist had a long list of enemies, Christians, Jews, white supremacists, police officers, and even his next-door neighbor. My producer Miranda joins us for this foiled terror plot. Next, 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke has put out the first big policy proposal of his campaign. It is a $5 trillion plan to combat climate change, which he called the greatest threat we face. Zach Coleman, energy reporter for Politico, joins us for all the details. Finally, if you have seen Avengers Endgame or that big Game of Thrones battle, you might have been feeling a lot of sad emotions lately. Don't worry if you feel a sense of loss or grief when your favorite character dies or even when your favorite show ends. It's totally normal. Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science, joins us for why mourning a fictional character is totally valid. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. All of these plans were related to Mr. Domingo's stated belief in violent jihad and that Americans should pay for attacks on Muslims around the world. Mr. Domingo said that he wanted to kill Jews as they walked to synagogue. At other times, he said he wanted to kill and target police officers. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. There's been a lot of talk lately about terrorism, and uh, we just talked about the shootings in San Diego at the synagogue there. There was a terror plot that was thwarted by the FBI in Los Angeles. Mark Stephen Domingo, he's 26 years old from Reseda. He was a U.S. Army infantryman with combat experience in Afghanistan, was just arrested this past Friday for trying to coordinate a terrorism plot There was multiple locations that he was thinking about, L.A. area freeways, white supremacist rally in Long Beach. He wanted to kill his neighbor at one point. There's all sorts of things. There's this weird central point also with the story we talked about in San Diego. And with this one also, both people felt that this shooting in New Zealand where all these Muslims were killed there in Christchurch was kind of the central point for them, the catalyst for them to really start wanting to make these plans. In this case, Miranda, what happened with Mark Stephen Domingo? If John Ernest in San Diego was motivated and inspired by the Christchurch shootings, it's fair to say that Domingo was also, but in the opposite direction. He was motivated to defend Muslims, defend Islam, and he was going to take out Christians, Jews, anybody who wasn't a Muslim. It didn't matter to him. In March and April of 2019, this guy Domingo started planning and took steps to manufacture and use weapons of mass destruction in order to commit mass murder. Just last week, he purchased several hundred nails to be used as shrapnel inside of an explosive device. His method was three inches or longer because he wanted to pierce the skin enough to puncture vital organs and cause slowly bleeding out death. He had collaborators who he thought were working with him, but they were in fact undercover law enforcement officers. So from the very beginning, there was never a chance that this plan was going to happen. Yeah, and the investigators and the FBI stressed that, that there was really never a danger to the community because he was constantly being monitored and all of the co-conspirators that he thought he was working with, he was solo on this whole thing, but everybody he thought was was an FBI right. informant or some confidential human source, they call them. He expressed violent jihad that he wanted to commit. As you said, he wanted this to be a retribution for attacks against Muslims. Mm-hmm. He had this willingness 
to become a martyr. There was all sorts of plans that they were trying to figure out, but they could never really settle on one thing. And, you know, I guess one of the FBI informants asked him, you know, are you, would you be willing to die for this or anything? And he's like, martyrdom, bro. I'm yeah. going to do it. Martyrdom, bro. It's all started on March 3rd. He posted on a website and we're, we don't know what it is yet. He posted, America needs another Vegas event, something to kick off a civil unrest. It's not about winning a civil war. It's about weakening America, giving them a taste of the terror they gladly spread all over the world. And it was there that he met these other two FBI agents whose job it is to monitor these types of websites and try to engage with these people and see what their plans are. So he posted that. And then a couple of days later, he posted after the shootings in New Zealand that there needs to be retribution. And from there, it all spiraled out of control. He met and befriended this FBI agent online. A couple of days later, met up in real life in person to discuss potential plans. One of their plans was to just drive around. He modified an AK-47 that he actually carried around with him everywhere. And one of the plans he wanted to do was drive around with this AK-47 and just do drive-by shootings on police officers. He wanted to find cops who had their windows rolled down and murder them and drive away. Early on, he could never really figure out what the plan was. He just wanted to do something. There was multiple meetings that he had with FBI informants. He became obsessed with this idea of getting his hands on an IED, an improvised explosive device. He wanted to get his hands on some type of pressure cooker bomb that would be capable of killing at least 50 people. And in correspondence that he had with these informants, he said, you know, I'll be honest, I'm smart in history, but I failed chemistry. Science is not my forte. And he was trying to get somebody who could be a bomb maker for him. And that's where this third person in their group comes in. This is another FBI agent that is connected through the first FBI agent. And he tells Domingo, hey, I've got this brother. That's what they call each other. They're brothers. I've got this brother out in Victorville, California, who knows how to make bombs. He doesn't want to roll with us because he has a family, but maybe I can get him to either make these bombs for us or show me how. And that's when Domingo just sparked. He said, learn how to do it. I want the effing details down to the letter and let's get this going. Yeah, that was on April 19th when he finally kind of said, okay, this is the plan I wanted to do. He wanted to target a white nationalist rally in Long Beach. There had been some time where uh, there was a right-wing Facebook group called the United Patriot National Front that created an event called Freedom's Safest Place. There was going to be some counter rallies. There was all sorts of things that were going on, but that was the one that he wanted to target. He even had a backup plan to target uh, some other rally in Huntington Beach. Either way, that's where he wanted to be at with this attack. Yeah, he got focused when he realized that this attack was going to be happening. But between these times, he was trying to just come up with plans to murder as many people as possible. He wanted to plant bombs on the freeways in Los Angeles and just detonate them at certain times. He wanted to plant bombs on the Santa Monica Pier on the weekend. And he had this plan he concocted where he would set up the detonators on remote control cars and be within 100 feet to try to blow them up. But he was concerned that he'd be too close and get hurt himself. So there goes the martyrdom, bro. Right, exactly. Really a win for law enforcement. They did a great job of identifying this guy on these crazy chat rooms where they're talking about taking action like this, just a great job of identifying him, following him, really getting him up to the point where they arrested him. They arrested him when they finally delivered two fake bombs to him, thinking he was ready to go. And that night he even went out to Long Beach to go scout the area where he wanted to blow them up. Right. Domingo met up with his partners at 
Bluff Park, which was where these rallies were to be happening in Long Beach. He walked around the location with his two partners and said that they should try to find the most crowded areas in order to kill the most people in the attack. Domingo instructed the other two guys that after they detonated the explosive, they should walk away, go their separate ways, all take three different cars. Nobody is seen together with each other. And after surveilling that location the night before it was supposed to happen, Domingo drove the other guys back to their original meeting locations where they were going to put the bombs in Domingo's car. He picked one up and that's when the FBI swarmed. We'll see how this one pans out. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. And the fires and the floods and the droughts and the man-made Natural disasters will only get worse if this planet warms another degree Celsius. And this is our moment to do everything in our power to free this economy from a dependence on fossil fuels. Joining us now is Zach Coleman, energy reporter for Politico. We're going to be talking about the 2020 Democratic candidate Beto O'Rourke. He just revealed a very ambitious $5 trillion climate change proposal. He wants to get to net zero emissions by 2050. There's things that he's got to go through Congress for, which could be very difficult. Tell us a little bit about the plan that he's got. Right now, the top line thing that he has out there is he wants to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So that's the goal It's saying we're not going to have any more emissions, which is ambitious in and of itself. How he would do that is he said he would restructure the tax code through legislation, essentially by taxing corporations and the wealthy more to use one point five trillion dollars of that restructuring is going to be used on investments in things like grants for transportation, on research and development, on jobs training that he thinks can drive in more private capital. So he's not talking about $5 trillion of federal spending. He's talking about using some of this tax code overhaul to drive more investment. But $5 trillion for fighting climate change is what he's looking at, whether it's private or federal money. He mentioned something about $300 billion would come from savings from changing the tax code and another $300 billion of direct investment. And that together would generate about $4 trillion. So there's different ways to help pay for this. But it seems very ambitious. If you got to go through Congress and pass new legislation, the GOP has been very resistant to aggressive emissions policies before. We see the way things are working in Congress right now. And even though there's a Democratic House, who knows? if that will hold true for the next wave of elections. So this is just really a really tough sell. There's no doubt it would be a huge, huge lift. And what was interesting is he said that this tax code overhaul, which is what would pay for this climate change push, he said that would be his first legislative priority. And when you think about Congress these days, you basically have a six-month window at the start of any two-year term to really pass your ambitious legislation. So if he's going to make that his first, if he's going to make that his Obamacare, essentially, then you got to think he's going to put everything that he can behind it. He's calling climate change the greatest threat we face to the country right now. How much of this is actually influenced by the Green New Deal? Because I know a lot of Democratic candidates were trying to sign on to that and, and endorse that a little bit. How much do these two plans share? I was talking to some activists who said there were strong echoes of the Green New Deal throughout this platform that O'Rourke put out there. And in a lot of ways, he is responding to that pressure. But he's also got a lot of pressure from the left because he has refused to sign a pledge that would reject fossil fuel money donations from corporate PACs, corporations and their executives. So there were a lot of people thinking that he is not up to the task on climate because he won't 
take the industry head on in that sense. But when I was talking to people, they said, you know what? Kind of surprised us. There were so many people who said this surprised. Now, they don't think he's going far enough because he hasn't refused to take right. money from, from PACs. But they were surprised and, and they saw this as being very much in line with the Green New Deal ethos of getting marginalized communities into the game, of spending on infrastructure, of democratizing clean energy jobs. So there was a lot that people liked. This is one of the first big policy proposals that we've seen from the Democratic candidates. It's kind of seen as a move to attract younger, maybe more progressive voters. But when the president is gaining small wins here and there with the economy, the economy has been growing. The economy is doing very well. I know there was skepticism on how long it could last, but we just had great GDP growth this last quarter. So all things are pointing to a really good spot for the economy. Will something like a big, ambitious climate change plan really help mobilize voters? That remains to be seen. That's the obvious question. There was some great reporting from the New York Times a few weeks ago that showed the overwhelming majority of, of Americans actually did get a pretty nice tax cut, even if they didn't think they did. So, you know, people are seeing some economic wins from this administration right now. But that that's today. You know, we have 18 right. months until the election. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting also to see where this kind of puts Beto O'Rourke among the other candidates on the Democratic side. Pete Buttigieg came out of nowhere and it was like number three in a lot of the polls behind Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And Beto O'Rourke, although he started his campaign off with a lot of excitement, has kind of dropped down a little bit. He's more in the middle of the pack. He hasn't had this great big breakout moment for his campaign yet. This might help with that. But, you know, that also remains to be seen. I think he's leaning into what, what people were saying about him in that he has a lot of nice speeches, but he doesn't have a lot of substance yet. And I think people have started to say that a little bit about Pete Buttigieg, too. So you get O'Rourke coming out here on climate change where he had been taking heat from the left. And he says, you know what? I'm going to lean right into this. If you don't think I have anything, I'm going to show you my card. Right. And he's now come out with probably the most detailed climate proposal out of any of the 2020 field. And if this is going to be as big of an issue as it's polling right now in Iowa, then that could be a significant driver for his campaign. And people love tangibles. They love to see these plans because you can hold people to it and people can attach themselves to it. So Zach Coleman, energy reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You have to be able to say that this is over and, and while you can go down memory lane, you have to find a new show, a new way to relate to your friend group, a new way to, to be in the world without Cedric Diggory from Harry Potter, who I think about all the time. <laughs> Joining us now is Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science. We have a lot of things going on right now in popular culture between Avengers Endgame and these huge battle scene that just happened in Game of Thrones over the weekend. There's a lot of loss. There's a lot of emotions going around. These are two properties specifically with those two that have been around for a long time, many years. People are invested in a lot of these characters. And when somebody dies or when shows end, as Game of Thrones will, and as this phase of Marvel movies are ending, people feel a loss when things happen. Case in point, there's a woman in China who just went to go see Avengers Endgame. And towards the end, she started crying so much. She was overwhelmed with emotion that she couldn't breathe well anymore. Her hands were turning numb. They had to take her to the hospital. They said her fingers got stuck in a clawed position. Doctors had to give her oxygen and help her out and give her some kind, consoling words 
at the end of it. But that's how emotional people get. The idea of mourning someone who doesn't technically exist is actually a real thing, though. Tell us a little bit more about this, Eleanor. It's called disenfranchised grief, which means that people tend not to um, believe it's real or validate the experience you're going through. But mourning a fictional character is, according to grief therapists and others, a totally valid experience and probably a fairly common one. The situation you were describing in China is a probably, uh, you know, the most extreme yeah, uh, case. <laughs> but I think it's something we all feel. You know, as I was writing this story, I was thinking about how 10 years later, I'm still thinking about some of the losses in Harry Potter. So those things stick with you. How do people get over these characters and these losses of these shows when they weren't real to begin with? I spoke um, with a therapist named Alan Wolfett, and I thought that what he said was really excellent for putting this all into perspective. He said, you know what the hardest grief is? The grief you're going through right now. And what he was emphasizing was that, you know, when you hear something about someone mourning an Avenger or a Game of Thrones character, we have this tendency to be like, oh, that's, you know, just a character. Or, you know, when people are mourning their pet, oh, that's just a dog. But he was saying that, you know, these aren't really categories we should be comparing to each other. It's an experience that's sort of subjective and specific to itself. And so the way to process these things is to find other people who are actually willing to say, I totally understand why you feel like you've lost something or like you're, you know, in mourning and who are able to talk to you about that in a really authentic way. Ideally, you know, they're probably a part of the same fandom and can right. kind of nerd out with you about what you loved about the last 10 years of watching this show or, or seeing these movies. One of the people that you mentioned in your article specifically, and I think that's kind of where the truest sense of this is, he was talking about after Sopranos ended. He said that him and his group of friends all felt sad, a little lost, and without the show, him and his friends don't have that same interest anymore. He's like, I miss them and I miss the show. And that plays out every week, at least for myself and, and my friend group. Every Monday, the text chain starts lighting up. People talking about, did you see the episode last night? Oh my God, it was so sad when so-and-so went. And I think that shared interest, beyond making an attachment to characters and the actors themselves, this shared interest with you and your friends and the people that are part of the fandom, that also works at play here. Definitely. It's that idea, right, of building a routine around a franchise and being able to create a very particular kind of friendship, right, where you're always checking in and you have the sort of touch point that you can always be referring to. And the idea that, you know, even if a character doesn't die, when a franchise inevitably comes to an end, you sort of lose that real life experience. And it seems like that for a lot of people sort of adds to that sense of loss. Not only have they lost these characters who they spent time with every week for years, but they also lost the friends they watched with. And people go through the mourning steps, just like if it was a a real event, one of the first things that happens when you're going to start moving on and processing all this stuff, it's this productive reminiscing. Right away in my head, it clicked. I was like, that's why reruns are so popular. You know, you, <laughs> totally. can, go, you can go back to those first episodes or those important scenes, those important episodes and relive those moments and you feel good again. Definitely. Yeah. I was thinking about that a lot about, you know, the idea that I spend so much time, for example, watching the office super cuts of, you know, the best moments of Jim and Pam <laughs> right. or the best moments of Michael and Holly. And it's exactly that. It's like, I don't want this to end. And with fictional things, to some degree, you don't have to. You can always be revisiting the Harry Potter books or rewatching Game of Thrones. But what I thought was so interesting was that idea, right, of it being a reminiscing that's productive. And it's about trying to, you know, move on and create a new identity even after this franchise has ended. And so, you, you know, to do that, you have to be able to say, 
that this is over. And, and while you can go down memory lane, you have to find a new show, a new way to relate to your friend group, a new way to, to be in the world without Cedric Diggory from Harry Potter, who I think about all the time. <laughs> That's funny. Eleanor Cummins, assistant editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. It's been great. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.